All right. It is good to be able to say good morning and, and not be wrong. Um, I know we've said good morning just about every Sunday, even though we've been meeting at one, but good morning. Um, it's good to be able to be with you this morning and, and be able to bring God's word. Um, before I start today, I, I want to say something about the events that occurred in Atlanta this past week. Um, many of you may know what I'm referring to. Uh, if you don't, uh, there was a white man who enacted violence against mostly Asian women in multiple spas. Uh, I believe it was three, and then he was on his way to a fourth location down in Florida. You can look up the de details yourself. I'm, I'm purposely keeping it kind of vague because we are in a mixed audience today. But I want to say this. Many times we hear of events like this, and, and our natural inclination is to think that it's just an isolated incident. He's just a, a lone wolf and, and just kind of out rogue doing his own thing. Uh, and there are some who are trying to say that this, the, the events that happened were not racially motivated. There were other reasons, and, and I'm sure there were other reasons that, that accompanied that. But if you listen to the victims, those that survived and, and were able to talk to the police, if you look at um, the translations of the Korean news sources that reported on it, he made his intentions and his racial motivations extremely clear. Here's the reality, though. We don't even need to know his specific motivations to be able to recognize a trend that's going on in our nation. There... There is a trend of violence happening against Asian Americans and, and other Asian, uh, Asians in America. There have been over 3,800 reported attacks against Asians in America, mostly women, over the past year. As most of you know, my family is distinctly Asian, so this hits home to me. What we have to realize is that none of this stuff happens in a vacuum. There's an atmosphere that's been created in this country, an atmosphere where it's okay to say things like China virus or, or Wuhan flu or, or even things like Kung flu. If you think that type of rhetoric doesn't have an effect, there are 3,800 victims who would like to say otherwise. Our words matter. Our words are an outflow of our hearts, and what is in our hearts will eventually come out some way or another. So I want to say that Redeemer Church stands with our Asian brothers and sisters in condemning this hate. We stand in solidarity with our Asian brothers and sisters, just like we do with our African-American brothers and sisters. And we stand completely opposed to white supremacy and all white supremacist ideologies. Supremacy in any and every form is an affront to the image of God that is in each of us. And God hates it. And today we stand with our brothers and sisters in mourning and lament. We grieve the senseless violence that has stirred up fears in the hearts of many and has left many having to prematurely say goodbye to their loved ones. So I want to take just a few minutes and approach the throne of God on behalf of our Asian American brothers and sisters and, and plead with God to do a work this morning to pray with me. 
Father, as um, just reflecting on the senseless violence that is happening across our nation, I, I saw another report of, of another one this morning against an Asian American woman. Uh, Father, the emotions that this stirs up are, are just, they run the, the spectrum, Father, from anger to, um, to fear, to um, mourning, to sadness. Father, just so many things that these events, that these reports stir up in us. And Father, we plead for you this morning to come and do a work that only you can do, Father. Father, to bring healing. Father, I pray that in churches across the country this morning that this same um, sentiment would be um, expressed. Father, that this is not something that you look down on and, and are pleased with, Father, but that, that this grieves your heart. This senseless violence is not okay. So, Father, I pray that you bring healing. Father, I pray for the families of these victims, Father, that you would bring healing to them, that you bring comfort in a way that only you can. Father, and for those that, um, that hold this uh, animosity um, towards people of a certain race or people of any race but their own, Father, of those who, who hold the ideology that, um, that whiteness is, is in some way superior to everything else, Father, I pray that you would crush that. And Father, that you would bring healing. Father, move. We plead with you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. In ancient Rome, the role of father was a big deal. In legal terms, the oldest male in a family line was, uh, had pretty much absolute power over the family. No one in the family, regardless of age, could marry, divorce, buy or sell property, or engage in, in any number of other legal transactions without the permission of the father of the family, the head of the family. But this title of father also spilled over into other areas of society. Senators in Rome were regularly addressed as fathers. At times, generals and soldiers who saved groups of people or, or even entire populations in war were called fathers. And in the realm of religion, probably the one we're most, most familiar with, if you think of the, um, the Catholic faith, priests were and, and still are to this day referred to as father. When we get to Cicero, in Roman history, we see that's, that's the first time the Roman Senate officially declared a, a Roman leader to be the parent of the fatherland, fatherland meaning Rome, the Roman Empire. Subsequently, uh, Julius Caesar was referred to as the father of the fatherland, and this trend continued with Augustus Caesar, who was the emperor at the time of Jesus's birth. And this brings us to Corinth. Corinth was founded by Julius Caesar as a city for former bondservants. Okay, so the city was not established as a place of great honor. And so they, they felt like they had something to prove to the rest of the empire. In other words, they wanted to show that they were a model Roman city. And one of the ways that they did this was to inscribe at the Agora, the public square in Corinth, a decree that Emperor Claudius and his son Britannicus were the fathers of the fatherland. Archaeologists have found these inscriptions. 
And this title, Fathers of the Fatherland, also made it on to the Corinthian currency under their coins. Okay? This title of father, um, it kind of, it had a specific function. It made it easier for the Romans to accept a ruler um, as authoritarian. Okay? They didn't really want leaders that wore the signs of a king, but they were okay with an authoritarian leader who was called father. Okay, so this title of father was a, it was a powerful tool that was used by the state to assert authority. And for the Corinthians, since the city was founded by Julius Caesar, he was seen as their founding father. And in, it's in this context, and in this historical background, that Paul writes this letter to the Corinthians. And we'll see how that plays out as we look at this last part of 1 Corinthians 4. Before we get there, though, I want to back up for a minute and remember what we talked about in the first part of 1 Corinthians 4. Remember that Paul was addressing the judgment of the Corinthians towards ministers of the gospel based on worldly arguments. The Corinthians were looking for eloquent arguments, exciting debates, and sophisticated rhetoric. They were coming to the gathering of the church to be entertained. It was early consumer Christianity. Not only that, they were viewing their entire lives through worldly standards. They wanted wealth and prestige and power. Their lives looked no different than the world around them. And we talked about how our situation in the church collectively and our lives individually today is often much the same. For the most part, 1 Corinthians 1 up to this point has been a pretty strong rebuke. And Paul understands that he's been He's used some pretty strong words. He's been uh, pretty, pretty straightforward and pretty blunt with the Corinthians. So here at the end of chapter 4, he's going to close out this section by addressing the rebuke he's delivered in the first four chapters. And in the process, he's going to appeal to their culture as a means of reminding them of his authority to bring this rebuke. So let's take a look. We're going to start in verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So after Paul's scathing rebuke at the end of um, the section that we looked at last week in verses 8 through 13, he tells them that he didn't write like that to make them ashamed. Like that, that wasn't his point of writing like that. The, the idea of being ashamed uh, in this verse is, is the idea of causing them to recoil or, or kind of pushing them away. But Paul's saying he's not shunning them. That's not what he's doing here. He's not giving up on them. He doesn't view them as hopeless or a lost cause. Instead, he's admonishing them. To admonish means to put pressure on their reasoning. He's pleading with them to turn to God, to repent. Paul's not giving up on them. He's applying the gospel and using the gospel to expose them to themselves. Here's something that's happening in, in churches today. There's an argument that we should just, quote unquote, preach the gospel. Now that sounds great, right? That's what we want to do. We want to preach the gospel. That's right. But here's the problem with the way that that is used. You'll generally see that argument, just preach the gospel, anytime you start talking about pragmatic issues in society. 
Particularly, you hear this when you start talking about things like racism or sexism, when you start addressing poverty or systemic injustice. The response from many will be that the church should just preach the gospel. And by that, what's most often meant is stop talking about those things and let's just spiritualize everything. Let's, let's just talk about the spiritual element of all of this. But Paul gives his answer here as he's addressing the worldliness and syncretism within the Corinthian church. The present issues in our world and the present issues at the time of Paul are gospel issues. The gospel addresses all of these matters. If we believe the true gospel, we cannot remain indifferent to these things. The gospel speaks to how we view worldly wealth, how we view prestige, how we view power. The gospel is not just, I'm saved, now I'm good to go. I don't have to worry about the rest of this. No, the gospel transforms every part of our lives. Beth Moore recently said it like this. I don't think we know the gospel. I think we know the plan of salvation, not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. She continued, this is what keeps me awake at night. I think that Jesus is saying over us, my people do not know me. The gospel will offend. It will press on areas of our life that we don't want to be pressed on. Let me do something real quick that may reveal some things in us. If we were to stand up here every week and say abortion is bad, which it is, most religious people wouldn't take issue with that, even if we said it every week. They'd applaud that, right? But if we stood up every week and said that white supremacy and Christian nationalism has infiltrated churches across the nation, and that that Infiltration is a major obstacle to the gospel in the U.S. People would say we're abandoning the gospel and we're becoming Marxist, un-American, liberal, social justice warriors. Now, both of these statements are true. Abortion is bad and white supremacy and Christian nationalism have infiltrated churches across the country. But only one of these would get pushback. Why is that? See, the situation I described is something that is happening in America. We're fine with addressing things that the Bible would denounce as long as it doesn't come too close to us. As long as we don't have to change in ways that make us uncomfortable. I mean, we're all good church-going people here, right? So don't tell us that our hearts are deceitful above all else and that our hearts are desperately sick. Don't tell us that. Make us feel good about ourselves. When the gospel requires that we repent of specific things in our own lives, things that we would be deeply ashamed of, if we let, if, if we let ourselves admit that they're in us, we start to squirm. We, we, we aren't comfortable with that. We don't like that. So Paul is talking to the Corinthians in a manner that is consistent with the gospel. He's pointing out the areas in their lives that aren't consistent with lives submitted to Jesus. He isn't abandoning them. He isn't giving up on them. He's calling them to repent, to live lives that are producing fruit in keeping with repentance. 
And the last phrase in verse 14 gives us a picture of how Paul feels about this church. He calls them, my beloved children. And he continues that line of thought in verse 15. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. All right, so here's what's going on here. As we read in Acts when we were starting this church, Paul planted the Corinthian church. And he's going to leverage that by adopting the language that the Corinthian culture uses to talk about Caesar. Remember that Julius Caesar refounded Corinth and was referred to as the father by the Corinthians. So Paul's playing directly off of that. He's calling him his beloved children and then saying he became their father through the gospel. Julius Caesar had become the father by means of worldly power. Paul had become their father by means of something that the world considered weak and foolish, namely the gospel. And he keeps going in his reference to their culture. The word used for guides is pedagogues. A pedagogue in ancient Rome was generally an educated bond servant who was hired by a family um, to help educate their child. They would escort these children to school and, and back. They would help them with their assignments, and then they were even responsible for helping to develop a sense of moral responsibility. So these guides were there to help the children and ensure that they were probably educate, properly educated, but they didn't have the final say. They, they were not the parents. They didn't have the authority that the parents had. Yet they were really helpful, and they served a very necessary purpose. And so in this, Paul isn't trying to downplay the need um, for these pedagogues in, Romans home, in Roman homes. And, and in using this metaphor for the church, he isn't trying to downplay the need for teachers in the church. It's not what his focus is here in this verses. His point here is that he's the one that brought the message of the gospel to them. And there have been those in the church who were trying to undermine that message of the gospel. They were mixing the gospel with Corinthian wisdom. And so Paul is trying to call them back to their first love. This echoes the letter in Revelation 2 to the church at Ephesus. It says, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And since Paul is claiming his fatherly authority in the gospel, he's going to use the gospel as the measuring stick against which he will measure the Corinthian church. Are the Corinthians living lives that measure up with the gospel? Are they living lives worthy of the calling they've received in Jesus Christ? Are we? Or are there areas of our lives, and I mean the lives of those listening today and the life of the one speaking today, that we need to turn away from? Are there ways in which we are not living lives consistent with the gospel? Are we taking what we like from the gospel and then taking what we like from culture, mixing them together and calling that Christianity, calling that our faith? Paul goes on. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Think for a minute about these two verses. Paul tells them to imitate himself. And that's why he sent Timothy. This is the essence of discipleship. Like, this is a perfect picture. Timothy was a child of Paul in the faith. Paul had walked with him and taught him to obey all that Jesus commanded. 
And Paul had examined the fruit of Timothy's life. He deeply knew Timothy, and he knew that his doctrine was sound and that his life reflected the doctrine that he professed. Paul knew that Timothy's life would reflect his own just as he was trying to reflect the life of Christ. Paul knew that his own life uh, produced fruit in keeping with repentance, and he knew that Timothy's life did as well. There is evidence of the power of the gospel at work within Timothy's life. And that power is key. And we'll see how in a few minutes. Verse 18. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. So here Paul is calling out the leaders in the Corinthian church who were in arrogance, undermining the simple message of the gospel. In arrogance, some will not submit to the lordship of Christ or the power of the gospel. And there will be no transformation in their lives. Even if their doctrine is on point, their lives will not be marked by the love of Jesus and they will bear fruit in keeping with their arrogance. You'll see arrogance in their speech, and you'll see arrogance in the people who follow them and pedestal them. Paul is saying that these these teachers were acting as if he were not coming. In other words, they're acting as if his authority were nullified by his absence. And in effect, they're acting as if the authority of the one who had given Paul authority as an apostle, namely Jesus, were nullified for the same reason. This is what Paul was talking about in chapter 3 when he said that they, they needed to be fed with milk, not with solid food. They were acting like little children who would only obey when their parents were watching them. They needed to be constantly supervised as they were not mature in the faith. And yet these arrogant ones were using eloquence and worldly wisdom to try to convince everyone that they were the mature ones that everyone should follow. This is happening in the American church today. There are some who have large followings and would dazzle people with their understanding of Greek and Hebrew. They'll use crafty arguments based on scriptures pulled out of context and create entire doctrines around them. This is happening with seminary professors, prominent pastors, Christian apologists, and and on and on we go. And you can easily follow them online. But if you weigh their arguments and their rhetoric and their words and the way they interact with others against the gospel, you'll see that there's no transformative power in what they're saying. If you look at those who follow them and who are brought into their inner circles, you'll see that the fruit that is being born is hateful and devoid of grace. They simply want everything to stay as it is. They want to protect the status quo at all costs. They don't want to let the gospel bring the conviction and transformation that the gospel brings. And this is the type of stuff that Paul is writing to confront. These people talk a lot, but there's no power in their words. They may have political and cultural clout, but they produce no gospel fruit. There is no gospel power in their words. And next, Paul gets to the heart of it. 
me read 19 and 20 again. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. This is what got Jesus killed. When Jesus was born and the Magi came to worship him, Herod killed all boys under two because he was afraid of a threat to his throne. But Jesus wasn't after his throne. Jesus wasn't after the kingdoms of this earth. Jesus was announcing the kingdom of God. He was requiring full allegiance to a greater king of a greater kingdom. So what is the kingdom of God? Hear that word, that phrase a lot. Jesus constantly talked about the kingdom of God. The gospels are dripping with language of God's kingdom. So it's really important that we try to wrap our minds around this concept. Let me preface this by saying that what we go over today is not going to in any way exhaust the topic of the kingdom of God. We'll just be scratching the surface and trying to get a, a base level understanding. There's so much that we could go into. So what is the kingdom of God? To put it simply, I'm going to steal this from John Piper. He said, the basic meaning of the word kingdom in the Bible is God's kingly rule. His reign, his action, his lordship, his sovereign governance. I want to look at a, a couple of verses to give us a little bit of context. I'm going to start with Psalm 103, verse 19. It says this, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens. His kingdom rules over all. So God's authority and his rule know no bounds. His sovereignty is complete. If this were not so, we could have no confidence in anything that he says. If God's rule and reign were not full and complete, then there would be a question as to whether or not he could do what he says he will do. But there is no question. His kingdom is over all. As we look forward, we're going to see that there's a little bit of nuance this scripture gives us. Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And John the Baptist in Matthew 3, 2 said, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So looking at these two verses, it might be reasonable to question the completeness of God's kingdom, of his rule, right? Does God's kingdom rule over all or doesn't it? Here's what I think is going on with these seemingly conflicting ideas. In Genesis, God gave authority to man to rule over all the earth, to rule over, to fill the earth and subdue it. Okay, in other words, he gave him dominion. Hey, man was set up as a vice region of God on earth. But at the fall, when Adam and Eve sinned, they shifted their allegiance to the domain of darkness. And when they did that, they shifted their allegiance away from the rightful king to the serpent instead. They functionally submitted their God-given authority to rule as vice regents to the will of Satan. Instead of listening to what God told them to do with their dominion, they begin to listen to their sinful hearts, and they begin to follow after the ruler of darkness. And yet the stewardship of that authority God gave us is still our responsibility. So that leaves us in a bad place leaves us powerless and hopeless. 
Instead of submitting to the Lord, we submit to the ruler of this world and we steward creation accordingly. And there must be a reckoning for our faithlessness in that stewardship. Remember what Paul said, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 4, verse 4, he adds this, in their case, in the case of those who have rejected the gospel and are therefore perishing, the God of this world, namely Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Ephesians 6.12 helps us understand a bit more of this. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the domain of darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So there is power at play in this world. And it's not the political power that we typically talk about. It's a spiritual power. There's a battle going on against the powers of this world. And since mankind willingly gave our allegiance over to the rule of Satan, the battle is fierce. It's a battle for freedom. And the enemy who holds us as slaves in bondage will not let go without a fight. Instead, he's convinced us that his way is the path to freedom. Do what you want, he says. You'll not surely die. But Matthew 4.23 describes the kingdom of God like this. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. The gospel of the kingdom. That literally means the good news of the kingdom. The rule and reign of Jesus is good news. And it's good news because it is the power of God for salvation. Jesus is king over the dominion of this earth. And he has the power to set us free from our bondage to sin and death. That's why Paul tells the Corinthians, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. But I will find, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Our human wisdom and eloquence is powerless. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, mankind has shifted allegiance to the serp serpent and we now use the authority that God gave us to fill the earth and subdue it, not for the flourishing of all to the glory of God, but for selfish gain in accordance with the whim and will of Satan. Yet we'll still be held accountable for keeping the original mandate. Maybe think of it like this. God has allowed us to use his property, but we have illegally sublet that property to the enemy. In the end, we're still going to be held accountable for how we used what God has left us as stewards of. And that includes how we steward our own lives as well. Jesus came as a man. He perfectly kept God's commands. He died an innocent death, and he broke the chains of sin and death as he was raised from the dead in a new body. The kingdom of God never went anywhere, and his ultimate authority over this world never went away. But after man delivered himself 
over to the enemy? Had God simply revoked all authority given to mankind by obliterating the enemy? It would have required the death of all mankind who was created in God's image. Rather than do that, God chose in his infinite wisdom to rescue mankind from that bondage by sending Jesus to do what we could not accomplish. And he did it with the power of resurrection. By faith in Christ, that power over death has been made available to us. Paul says this in Romans 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Paul is saying he could care less about any argument that does not focus on the gospel of the kingdom because there's no power to be found anywhere else. There's one other place that we need to look. Let's take a look at the Lord's Prayer, or just one section of it. Jesus says this, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is where the rubber meets the road for us. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As the gospel of the kingdom breaks people free from the bondage to the ruler of the world, it transforms us, and that transformation begins now. Isaiah described this centuries before Jesus came. For uh, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. Do you hear it? Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. God's kingdom has broken through. That's what John the Baptist was saying when he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. God's kingdom has come near and is now being revealed. His rule and reign never diminished, but now he's exerting his sovereign authority over the world in power, while at the same time saving humans from their due destruction. And as people put their faith in Jesus, his reign and rule is continually more fully revealed on earth. One day it will be complete, and destruction of the enemy will be complete. But until that day, we will continue to be transformed into the image of the Son. And that includes, pay attention, that includes the way we approach the mandate given in the very beginning, to fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, as the power of the gospel takes root in us, it produces change in us that changes how we approach the world around us. That means we look at the way that God looks at the world. How can we steward the resources that have been entrusted to us so that the power of the gospel will go forth and take hold in the lives of people so that they can be set free from the chains of sin and death? How can we steward the resources that have been given to us so that every person on earth can flourish? 
How can we steward God's resources to bring justice to earth? How can we steward God's resources to show love to one another? Wherever the power of the gospel is seen on this earth, the kingdom of God is being revealed among men. The power of the gospel is that Jesus is Lord of all. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Living unchanged lives while telling people that the gospel will save them is empty talk devoid of power. Let me say that one more time. Living unchanged lives while telling people that the gospel will save them is empty talk devoid of power. In the last verse of our passage today, Paul's going to bridge to what we'll talk about in chapter 5. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love with the spirit of gentleness? For the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul has been strongly denouncing the divisions in the church that have been caused by syncretism and pride. And here Paul's going to return to his authority as the founding father of the Corinthian church and tell them he would much rather come and rejoice with them. Like that's what he wants. He wants to come and rejoice with them, but there's far too much at stake. If the church is divided, then the picture to the world is that Christ is divided. And if Jesus is divided, there is no power for reconciliation. As Brian has said repeatedly over the last month, the church in America is deeply divided. We are presenting a divided Christ to the world. And the Corinthian church was doing the same. Paul wasn't going to sit by idly and watch this happen. This is bigger than any one person or faction in the church. It was bigger than the Corinthian church as a whole. This is about who Jesus is. There's no power in a divided kingdom. That's the same argument that Jesus used when he was casting out demons and they came and said, oh, you're doing this in the, in the power of Satan. He said, a house divided cannot stand. And Paul is seeing the Corinthian church as a divided house. Paul knew that some would ignore his appeals. He knew that some of the teachers would grip their power tightly and reject what he was saying wholesale. He knew that some would remain deeply rooted in their arrogance. His words here are consistent with the way he spoke in 2 Corinthians 10. He said, I beg of you that when I'm present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing to some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but we have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So the moral of the story, our divisions based in pride and arrogance are an affront to the kingdom of God. The battle being waged is a battle for the souls of men and women. Those who stand in arrogance and bring division are opposing the knowledge of God. And Paul will not stand for it. He will bring the rod of truth, if necessary, to maintain unity in the body. Paul knows full well that the gospel has divine power to destroy strongholds. 
He wants to come and enjoy Christian fellowship with them. But if they persist in their divisiveness, he will come in the full force of the power of the gospel to break down the strongholds and reveal these divisive leaders for the wolves that they are. Divisiveness in the church is not a game to be played. Jesus is Lord and has broken down the wall of hostility. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We have to understand that the gospel is good news precisely because Jesus is Lord. And he is Lord of all. Not some, all. His dominion knows no bounds. That is the good news. Jesus is sovereign over all. And in his death and resurrection, he offers hope to us one day that we can reign with him if we will trust, with him, trust in him and in his power over sin and death. And there could be no better news than the truth that God is love and Jesus is Lord. That means that our loving God is over everything. And that makes submission to Jesus and his teaching both necessary and delightful. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful that you have all authority in heaven and earth. Father, and that you have given all authority in heaven and earth to Jesus. Father, that the, the gospel is good news because it is the power of salvation. Father, we're thankful that... Um, that we have a God that rules and reigns. We don't have to, to wonder if things are going to go the way that you said they are. They are because you have ultimate power and authority and dominion. You reign and rule. And so, Father, Father, I plead with you this morning that we would submit our lives gladly and willfully to your leadership, to your uh, Father, to your leading, to your guiding, to your love, to your grace, to your rule and reign. Father, let us stop trying to be Lord over our lives. Let us stop shifting our allegiance to ourselves or to this world or to worldly power. Father, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Let our, let our allegiance be to Jesus alone. Because he alone is worthy of our praise, of our worship, of our allegiance. Father, remind us that in Christ, our citizenship is not of this world, but it is in heaven. And let us live our lives on this earth accordingly. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.